Amber, I'm coming out the gate hot. I'm coming out the gate hot and strong with my hot take because the season two of The Wire. Yeah, you're coming hot. I'm you're coming. hot and coming, oh, Devin. Oh, you, you don't understand how much that works <laughs> for what I'm about to say, Amber, because season two of The Wire is divisive because some people are fucking dumb and have tiny little stupid no-know-how-to-analyze media brains. But I Right, not me. I have the right opinion about The Wire. <laughs> but we are geniuses, and lots of people uh-huh. think Ziggy Sabatka isn't a good character. They are wrong, and I think it's mostly because they can't relate to him. But I can relate to Ziggy Sabatka. Do you know why, Amber? Because both of us have big, fat, Polish cocks. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> yeah, I guess this is pretty much what I should have expected. Uh, right now, because I don't think any of our friends have watched The Wire, so just hopefully one person, there's like one other person is like, oh yeah, Ziggy Zabotka does have like a huge cock for some reason, and all of our friends are just like, what the fuck is happening? Amber, what? We're always going back to Antichrist on this podcast. <laughs> Amber, what's the podcast? What do we do here? Tell the folks at home. You know, I really thought that we were going to, like, I was like, oh, we're opening on The Wire this week. It's going to be a classy discussion. It's a critically acclaimed show. We're going to be smart and have things to say because I'm an idiot. And I forgot for two seconds what the show is, which incidentally is original podcast. Do not steal a weekly show in which every week Devin and I, and sometimes, but not always a co-host, take your favorite and or least favorite uh, in franchises, intellectual properties, television shows, games, whatever. And we make an original character in that franchise. And today, we are talking about The Wire, um, a show that Devin has seen and I spent like a decade um, knowing that I'm supposed to watch it and then not watching it. And at some point, uh, I, well, at some point, well, it's like the podcast is today and I spent 10 years not watching it. So I kind of made my own bet on that one. That was a good transition. Shout out to you. You're getting better at the whole podcasting thing. Look at us. Growth. (laughs) So where do I want to... Here's where I want to start with The Wire, because I listened to a very bad Penny Dreadful Rewatch podcast, and I won't name names because I don't want to insult peers or whatever, but that podcast was bad, and I am constantly insecure about all of my creative endeavors, so I was like, I have to say one goddamn interesting thing about The Wire to justify this episode's existence. So here's the thing I found is that some art is like complicated and hard to understand and stuff, right? Like art's meaningful and whatever. <laughs> I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> God, I'm dumb. But sometimes You're not dumb. <laughs> thank you. But like sometimes symbology, uh, you know, metaphor is text jpeg of annihilation right if you're not engaging with that on the metaphorical it is to miss the point of the story as opposed to something like the wire which is far more literal and there is like symbology and metaphor to be had but you don't need to notice in the start of season two that uh jimmy mcnulty who has become a boat cop for reasons we'll get into but he finds this yacht of rich fucks who just want to party and they bribe him so that jimmy mcnulty carries their boat so they can continue partying and their boat's called like not affirmative action but like bailout trust fund or something like that and so metaphorically the rich are bribing the government a police officer a civil servant so that they can continue to party and disrupt the means of the working class because they are still in the shipping lane and that is thematically all what season two of the wire is about it's about deindustrialization and the diminishing working class in baltimore 
And you don't need to notice that in metaphor because the show is didactic. And for those who don't know what didactic means, it means that it is storytelling wherein the writer has a specific worldview, a specific theme, a specific political point that they want to get out and they will say it in text. So you don't need to catch everything that scene is doing because the entirety of season two will explain what that scene was doing and what it's about. And hopefully that's enough of an interesting point about The Wire to justify this episode. I've talked a while. Do you have anything to say before I keep doing? it hey Devin what's the wire <laughs> the wire is the, brain, is the brainchild of one David Simon who is a Baltimore native he was a former journalist for the Baltimore Sun who became like a show right I don't want to say his big claim to fame and talk a lot about David Simon because I'm not like a David Simon expert but he wrote Homicide which was I think it was like a year in the life on the killing streets. And it was this like no holds barred full guerrilla journalism about like how cops in Baltimore and how like gangs and street life operate and stuff like that. And then he turned it into various TV projects. And the, the biggest one is of course the wire and Oh God. I, so the, <laughs> I have so many things to say, but where I want to start is to say that on Pod Yourself the Wire, a good rewatch podcast by Matt Lieb and Vince Mancini. A thing that Matt Lieb says a lot is that the wire is less like a TV show and more like a novel, a fantasy novel in particular. But instead of like uh, reading the Silmarillion and now you get to know about the, the Illavarta and Malagor and all that dumb shit, right? You'll get to learn like what a, a PB. The Louvatar, but thank you. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> You get to learn about like what what a PBJ is and the logistics of being a stevedore and how shipping containers move from A to B. That's like the wires version of lore. It's all this real life stuff. And the moment it became like the correct take that the wire is a goddamn fantasy novel to me is when I went to the Wikipedia because I needed like a actress's name. And sometimes, you know, you hit characters and it takes you to a separate Wikipedia page. When it takes you to that separate Wikipedia page, it breaks down characters into factions like their goddamn Game of Thrones families. So it was like, do you want the police? Do you want the FBI? Do you want the Project Kids? Do you want the East Side Boys? The West Side Boys? The Steven Ross? It's like, there's so, there's so much here. There is so much to talk about. So real quick, if you are a fan of The Wire, I might not talk about Wallace or I'm going to talk about McNulty or like Landsman. There will be characters and things I have left out. I am only up to season two of The Wire because I got I was like, we're going to do The Wire. And I got to the end of season two and I was like, I can't do a a singular (laughs) wire episode of my show with three seasons of wire knowledge so those are two things up top so to be clear we're doing a wire. neither of us have seen season three of the wire no neither of us have seen season okay three great okay one <laughs> okay cool <laughs> because what could go wrong what's the worst that could happen there's just so much the wire handles so much and so here are two statements i want to say up top and that is one to say that the wire is about one thing in specific or to say that the wire is propaganda is to not engage with the fucking wire <laughs> you have missed the point my friend and the second one i will defend like as we discussed but the first one i want to back up and 
Matt Lee and Vince Mancini, they like to say that The Wire is a show about hating your boss, and I agree it is about that in part, but I think if there is one thing that The Wire is about, and it's not, but it's about explaining why Baltimore is, air quotes, a fail city, and to explain that, there's an interconnective web of government dysfunction that must be described. Like when I say the sentence, the interlocking systems of power that govern our lives are fundamentally corrupt and inane, that's a sentence that you need to unpack. So when you say Baltimore is a fail city, if you're like a dumb person who's not trying to actually have a conversation, you have to explain, like poverty and its relation to crime and how the war on drugs was meaningless and ineffective and only resulted in harm for the citizens and created a more violent like <laughs> culture within the inner city you have to explain why policing is fucked and inept you have to explain how feckless bureaucracy incentivizes that the police are not a force to help anyone but rather to something that exists to uh, harass and criminalize drug abusers and <laughs> minorities you have to explain how uh, a corporate structure within the police also makes it so that the goal of the job is to not create an environment wherein crime does not happen because that is anathema to climbing the corporate structure because in order to climb the structure you have to take places from red to black you have to make number go up on sheet and that becomes the goal and you have to explain that's relationship to just the politics and you have to talk about the diminishing middle class and why we don't make things in America anymore and we used to, the line from season two is we used to make things in this country now we just line the next guy's pocket and you have to talk about all of these things and The Wire is a show that like I don't want to say fetishizes but is almost self-indulgent in it's like slow western malaise because it's four episodes before The Wire is gotten because it's a show that is like addicted to a level of realism where if you're watching say csi they just go and we're gonna get a wire and the show goes no no no. there's a reality here wherein if you want to get if you want to get a copy of a beeper you have to go to your lawyer friend to get them to write up an affidavit to get a proof of exhaustion which means you as a police officer have exhausted every other possibility until this point get everyone in your unit who is working on it to sign off on it have your lawyer check all the dots and i's because cops don't know how to spell send that to the judge the judge then has to send that to your immediate boss <laughs> that is the process by which you need to get a fucking copy of a beeper and that's what the show's about and when i say that the wire is a slow show about government dysfunction that can make it sound very dry and boring but it's not because it's written by david simon and david simon's first language is like poetic vulgarity there are two scenes that immediately come to mind one is shout out to fucking i believe it's john landsman who is how would i describe this motherfucker he's like a theater kid bridge troll who happens to be a police officer who is just like cackling while he eats this disgustingly wet sandwich and like the first line he has to jimmy mcnulty is like 
And that's right, Jimmy, and it's your higher up, not the judge who has what remains of your beshitted career. Or Jimmy McNulty has this conversation, and I'm throwing out a lot of names and we'll get to it, but Jimmy has this conversation over the phone with his ex-wife where she's like, what color is the bed, Jimmy? Because she does not believe that Jimmy McNulty actually got a bed for his kids to sleep in, and she was correct. But he's like, what color is it? Uh, Fuck do I know the color? Hangs up, and Jimmy looks over at his partner, Keem, and he's like, you know, a lesser man, a man who is not so elegant as I, who is not understanding of the suffrage of women, that man, if he heard the exact situation I just got out of with my wife, that lesser man than I might call my wife a cunt, which is just the most writer roundabout way of getting a character to call a woman the C word. And Kimo's immediately just like, Did you just call your wife a cunt? And he's like, no, 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 I didn't. <laughs> And so that is a lot of words that I just want to, before I get into it, check in to see if all of that makes sense, because sometimes I worry I ramble and none of what I say makes sense. So are, are you tracking me? Does that all make sense? You are rambling, but it does make sense. Um, I have about uh, five dozen different things in the th- course of what you just said that pique my interest. Um, but I would say that the main two that I am interested in here are like, um, one... Uh, where you describe it as a fantasy, mm-hmm. like a fantasy novel, um, right towards the beginning of that whole speech, um, which is really interesting to me because I think that sometimes we struggle in this podcast to make or- original characters who are interesting in like a realistic fiction sort of a setting. But if there are analogs to the fantasy genre, that gives us a lot of holds to work with. And so I think understanding like what the rules of the setting are, like that's a language that we're conversant in that we can talk about on this show. Like, that's a set of vocabulary that we have at our disposal. So I think leaning into that is going to be good for us going into the episode. Um, uh, And the other thing that was, the other main thing that was interesting to me, um, I've forgotten. So I will, at some future point in the episode, go, oh, that's the thing that was interesting to me. So this this is your official setup for that payoff when it comes later. You know, you saying, like, we struggle to make characters in more grounded, realistic shows wonderfully ties me into the next part of the show because the other reason that the show is not dry outside of just dialogue that is engaging and keeps your attention even though they are throwing out cop terms and never blinking. There is no, like, character who's like, what's a PBJ? Uh, Stuff like that is the characters are all so goddamn engaging. There was a thing you said on the Order of the Stick episode that was characters who have really involved psychologies. And there's lots of thoughts and spaces about, like, what makes for good characters. We've had that discussion just a lot off air, and I think it usually comes down to intent of the show. And because The Wire is not a traditional cop procedural, but procedural in the sense that it is, like, a slower-paced thing and that, like, addiction to a more grounded realistic portrayal its characters do have very involved psychologies and you come to understand people not so much from like a family dynamic but like i'm getting a little sidetracked but like the evil of the wire is not like a human level like i delight in cruelty but like a mechanical level like the systems in which we all live under are like incentivize socio like a a level of sociopathy to advance in a corporate structure right and so like characters in the wire when it comes down to that like understanding how they got to be the way they are it's everyone is a product of their environment to some extent and that plays into it and so like the wire is not like digimon adventure one is a very traditional hero's journey 
wherein all characters start a certain way <laughs> and you can follow A to B to C and they are fundamentally different from start of the series to end of the series as opposed to Digimon Season 3 Tamers wherein character development is much more subdued, it is personalized, some characters are fundamentally changed, all characters are changed to some extent, but sometimes it, like it's just in small ways and sometimes growth is a worse thing. The Wire is more akin to that than the former, where most characters do not have profound moments of change, and it's more about giving them moments of humanity. Like, I'm going to go over the cops in a second, but Herc and Carver are like, to, okay, before I get into it, I did remember the thing I wanted to say, and that I'm going to talk a lot and say, like, Jimmy McNulty is a fucking Irish deviant scumbag, or Herc and Carver just two pieces of shit, or Stringer Bell's a dumb motherfucker. Spoilers, Stringer Bell is a dumb motherfucker. Um, but that is, like, to flatten and diminish how the show handles characters, and it's just to kind of give you a broad idea, but, like, Herc the stumble-bumble-fuck police officer who, him and Carver, you understand that, like, their understanding of police work is not about, like, being a part of the community and, like, building a case with, like, evidence and proving conspiracy. They understand policing as, like, showing up to the hood and harassing people and reminding them who the fuck we are because cops are a gang. And it's mostly harassing Bodie in specific. But there's an episode where they go to Bodie's grandma's house and they're knocking over the door and they're yelling, like, they live in this fucking shithole. I'm going to beat his ass. And... Carver leaves and Herc stays there and he sees that it's just Bodie's grandma and he apologizes like I didn't mean to cuss I'm sorry about this here's my number if Bodie comes home let him call it and in any other show this would be like like the start (laughs) of an arc but because the wire is more about like human beings who don't tend to have (laughs) like traditional three-act structure arcs Herc doesn't have, like, a fundamental change at the core of who he is, but it's about remembering to give glimmers and bright spots of humanity, even in people who are, like, dirt scumbags, like goddamn Prezbolewski. Does all of that make sense before I get on? Because I'm about to talk about characters more in specific. It does. I have, um, I have a question before you get into characters in specific. Go for it. Um... It's the thing that I forgot that I was going to mention earlier, and you reminded me of this of it during your speech, which is, um, so this is a question. This is a this is a show that's very specifically about the like relationships between specific people and like policies and systems in Baltimore, mm-hmm. which is like a real place that exists and has real policies enacted by real people with names and addresses. And so at that level of specificity for an entire TV show, like talking about like, you know, kids from different neighborhoods in Baltimore, specific policies that exist, how much of the show is fiction versus nonfiction? It feels like like you can't talk about the politics of a city without acknowledging like some of the major mayors that have existed through the history of the city right but it also like yeah i'm i'm curious please yeah thank you because that was a thing that i oh i told myself to bring up but then forgot once i got carried away with the speech but yeah it's i'm just gonna talk about actors for a second but it ties in but this show is a wonderful mix of like these british theater kids and (laughs) 
just civil servants they found in Baltimore. <laughs> and <laughs> Here's how you track it, is that almost no one on the show who is an actor can do the Baltimore accent. So whenever someone can do the fucking Baltimore accent, that's how you know they're a Baltimore native. And that level of like a mix of actors and just people they found on set to give an air of like authenticity comes down to like, I don't think it is specific mayors or anything like that. I could be wrong. I'm not a Baltimore expert, but so many characters and situations in this show do directly come from the fact that David Simon was a journalist who hung around with cops in Baltimore for a while. And so, like, uh, John Landsman is based on someone he knew. Jimmy McNulty is a combination of people he knew. Ziggy Sabatka is specifically a (laughs) Polish stevedore with a big cock (laughs) that David Simon knew. So Just like you. Yeah. Just like me. Just like you. I am, in fact, the real-life Ziggy Sabatka. I have a purse close in relationship to David Simon. David, friend of the show, come on the pod. <laughs> but does that answer the question, or was that too rambly? No, I think that more or less answers the question. It, it still sounds like, like mostly fictional in terms of, like, the specific power systems and stuff but yeah definitely like showrunner was a journalist who worked in baltimore and that affects yeah that makes sense to me okay cool and yeah the other part of what keeps the story fun is those characters and i will talk about them in specific and there will be a divergent point <laughs> that makes the difference between are we doing a season one OC or a season two OC because there's just so many motherfuckers to talk about. So on our police force, let's start with the essentially the main character, but the mark of a true quality TV show or any property really is when you have a main character and then they cannot be around for a while and it's still fun. I imagine Buffy does that, right? That just feels like a thing that's true. Not really. There's very, very few episodes that Buffy isn't around for. Really? I mean, I don't think that Buffy is anywhere near the most interesting character in Buffy, and I think that you easily could do a lot of interesting storytelling in Buffy, and I think most of the arcs that are the best ones don't involve Buffy. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, But it's a thing that I think the show could do, but not necessarily I think it does. Sorry, we're talking about The Wire. Oh, no, it's fine. Man, I really need to rewatch Buffy. But anyways, Jimmy McNulty... I'm I'm stealing a line from Matt Lee, but he has the the personality of a man who loves to get divorced. And I'm going to talk about the, like, hyper (laughs) Jimmy McNulty is an Irish deviant and a fuckboy moment a little later in the episode. But just to to be quick, uh, Jimmy McNulty is the self-described devout cynic who is secretly a hopeless romantic. You've all, you're listening to a media podcast. You've all seen Casablanca and or have digested Casablanca's cultural impact to understand that character and archetype. And that's Jimmy McNulty. And he has like a pathological just need to say fuck you to the bosses and speak truth to power so much so where he will shoot himself in the foot if it means comrade. 
compromising his case and not doing it the way he wants to. And his motivations for doing good police work are less about like a romanticized ideal of what policing is and more so Jimmy McNulty wants you to know that he is a very smart guy. Uh, his best friend is Bunk, who is wonderful comic relief and he has the <laughs> the best one of the best lines in season one but jimmy mcnulty's carnal sin is because he exists in a corporate structure it's making your immediate superior look incompetent to their immediate superior and just fucking up that chain of command and like bunk says jimmy you fucked up you gave a fuck when it wasn't your turn to give a fuck some of the other police we meet are like Herc and Carve, who I've already talked about, and I, I feel I did a good job. Uh, Prez Belusky, I do need to talk about for a moment, because when you first meet Prez Belusky, it is literally, he fires his gun in the police basement because he was showing Harver how loose the trigger on his gun is, and you're like, this seems like a man who should not have a gun as a profession, and it's correct because at the end of episode two, Herc, Carver, Presbolewski get drunk, go to a high-rise building, and just start harassing black people for literally no reason. And there's one black kid sitting on the cop car, eating chips. I fucking Presbolewski and Presbolewski cold cocks that child with his gun and starts a fucking police riot. So it's like, yeah, guys, this is definitely copaganda and painting cops in a good light. But after that, Lieutenant Daniels, who I'll talk about in a second, but he's played by Lance Reddick. Lieutenant Daniels, when is talking to them about what the fuck happened? Why were you, what, what were you doing at 2 a.m. and the projects? And like, oh, we were conducting interviews. Conducting interviews, my ass! <laughs> but... As they're going over it, another... Th I'm I'm everywhere with this. I'm not going to get sidetracked with this one. I'll do it in a second. But as they're going over what happened, Prez Belusky is like, I'm I'm the one who hit the kid. And Lieutenant Dan is like, why'd you hit the kid with the butt of your rifle? <laughs> and the only thing Prez Belusky can say is because he pissed me off. And then, again, such propaganda. The, like, noble superior Lieutenant Daniels goes, no. Presbelewski, he did not piss you off. He made you and your fellow officers feel for your safety. Perhaps, after you had already instructed him to step back, he picked up a bottle after your fellow officer had been shot. And do not use lethal force, you chose to use your baton to put him down. Do I make myself clear? And he coaches him on how to ignore a police brutality charge. Because this show is not propaganda. I just, ugh. Every time I see it on Twitter, it upsets me. Um... And God, there are several things I want to say about that. But, like, I say that, and Prez Belusky sounds like a piece of shit, right? He sounds terrible, and not like a character you'd ever want to root for. But you understand that Prez Belusky is a coward, and when you give a coward with a gun, that's a bad fucking recipe. And he's actually good at, like, the part of police work that is boring and, like, necessary to solving murders and shit, wherein you are good at putting clues together and solving numbers and finding connections that are meaningful to build the case. And so, like, he gets put off of street duty immediately, and he can shine, 
and you you get it. And he's like a fan favorite of the show for reasons I'm sure I will understand and be more better equipped to talk about once I have finished it. But that's a highlight to him. Another thing I want to talk about uh, is because a thing the show like I don't think cop unions ever come up, but it's so good at understanding like the union aspect of policing, wherein like unions are cool because they give you and your worker friends power and the ability to say, fuck the boss, I'm not going to get fired. I'm going to take time off and you're still going to pay me. Eat shit. And cops are a gang and the job number one, even before it's like make number go up and make your immediate superior happy, it's like we back each other up. And so that scene where Lieutenant Daniels is chewing out Herc and Carver, like who did this? Herc and Carver do not sell Presbalewski out. They were never going to tell that Presbalewski was the one to cold talk to the kid, which is just like a really uh, subtle thing The Wire does. Another thing I wanted to say is that a thing I only caught this time is that Lieutenant Daniels, because it is a show that rewards a goddamn rewatch because it's so fucking dense. Uh, but Lieutenant Daniels is like, this makes four <laughs> police brutality charges, Herc. And Herc's reply is, none of them that went through the courts. <laughs> you piece of shit. Uh. Then there's, uh, let's talk about Daniels, who is played by Lance Reddick, which means he has the proportions of a pterodactyl and the face of a t-rex he's such an intimidating you know some actors like yell and you're just like oh okay you're yelling and some actors yell and it's like why does it feel like my parents are yelling at me right now <laughs> lance reddick could do that I've, i think i've only ever seen him in john wick yeah ah oh, fucking r.i.p lance reddick you were a cool dude um but his thing is he wants to be very good at the game, at the political nature of policing, at climbing the corporate structure. And he is, he understands it, but he can't shake the part of him that is a Boy Scout and want, and thinks that doing good policing is the way to advance. And no, dude, it's, it's just kissing ass and doing the least amount of work possible and making your bosses happy. Uh, there is Kima, who is like the head of the Hurricane Carver Stooge Committee. She's... Uh, she's kind of boring. I'm, I'm not gonna like Kiva's not my favorite, but she's like a lesbian and her arc in like season two is becoming a, a cop husband because her wife gets pregnant and there's such a palpable level of disinterest every time Kiva's girlfriend talks about having a fucking baby. And I'm like, oh, oh, Kima, I, you were, you were made for police and not staying at home. And there are other cops like the one who makes... Uh, tiny doll furniture whose thing is just kind of being quiet and quietly smarter than everyone and he got uh, fucked forever and sent to pawn shop duty because he tried to do his job of solving crimes and the bosses were like god you see you made me look bad fuck you and so now amber i think i've done an adequate job talking about members of the police force here's the divergent point the part we're going to split off into a season one or season two because the way i understand it is that each season of the wire tackles like a different area right season one the drug game season two workers season four is about school season five is about journalism and though so i want to ask you what sounds more interesting uh a bunch of (laughs) A bunch of drunk ethnic white stevedores fucking yucking it up and getting into white 
crimes or a bunch of kids on the block selling heron? Obviously, the second one sounds more interesting. I. It's also, I think, the one that's much more likely to end up with me uh, making an ass out of myself. But I think that probably the fact that it's more interesting says that it's a way to go, right? Okay, so we're doing a we're doing a season one. I get to talk about D'Angelo and all the Barksdale boys. You sure do. I mean, I assume you get to because uh, I, you know, I assume those are season one characters. Yeah, that's that that season one. Season two is uh, Frank Sabatka and the Stevedores and all that shit. And I was just trying to think of where I want to start with the Barksdale crew. Um, so I am semi-famous amongst a circle of my friends for hating Stringer Bell, who's played by Idris Elba. And I would like to make a real quick distinction that my hatred of Stringer Bell does not come from a like. I think he is misused in the show. I think he is fucking stupid in specific ways that are the point the show is trying to. It's effective that he is dumb in the ways in which he is dumb. It just upsets me. It's not a fault of the show before I get into, like, who Stringer Bell is. So the Barksdale crew are the West Side drug dealers of Baltimore. And we're not going to talk about uh, Prop Joe or any of the East Side boys because I'm not there enough yet. Oh, fuck, I need to talk about... Talk about I'll talk about Omar. Oh wait, we're talking about season one, so we do get to talk about Omar. Okay, uh. the Barksdale crew. The head of the Barksdale family is Avon Barksdale, who's played by Wood Harris, and he's just chill is the first word that comes to mind. But it's when you run a criminal organization, when you are in the projects, right? When you are selling heroin to crack fiends. Half of the job is just common sense, right? And that's what Avon has in a ample supply. Common sense and understanding of when to apply violence, when to back off, when things sound fishy, when they don't. Uh, and the other half is like a on-the-ground boots to, uh, boots to feet. I'm saying the word wrong. He actually does shit. He's a go-getter, right? D'Angelo Barksdale is kind of the main character of the Barksdale crew, and his thing is he's kind of like if my uncle had a heroin empire and I was a charge to sell drugs, which is to say D'Angelo Barksdale is not made to sell drugs. He's very soft. <laughs> he's, like an, he's an introspective guy who doesn't want to be mean. <laughs> And I'm like, my my brother in Christ, you are in the wrong fucking business. Um, yeah, he's the one who is like on a fundamental level, not designed for the game that is the only option he truly has in life. And the series starts because D'Angelo shoots someone and he gets off because they've manipulated witnesses and stuff. And the <laughs> the wonderful elevator pitch for The Wire is like, what if a judge made cops do their job? <laughs> because a judge makes cops do their job. But anyways, um, but because D'Angelo got in trouble, he goes from selling drugs in the towers to selling drugs in the pit. And that's where you meet Wallace, who is played by Michael B. Jordan. This is Michael B. Jordan's first role. That's a fun fact for everyone. Oh, shit. <laughs> wow, that was so much fun, Devin. <laughs> oh, it's not fun because, spoilers, he dies. He gets shot in the head by his own homies. It was Devin. fucked up. <laughs> Devin! <laughs> 
Man, I was sitting here like, man, this show sounds good. I should watch it sometime. But now I can't because I've learned a detail about a single plot event that happens in it. <laughs> yeah, that's how art works. You learn one detail and it's just ruined forever. Uh, but Wallace, who is equal to D in that he is not designed for this, but D'Angelo is like an adult who has grown to be a soft individual who is not designed for this. Wallace is a child. Like, he's like 15, and there's an episode where he is pointedly playing with a Beast Wars toy, and it's like, oh, but he, this is a, this is a kid. Uh, Poot, who is like <laughs> a hardened sex fiend. <laughs> Like, a recurring bit is just how constantly horny this man is to the point where other characters are like, stop, bro, stop for one, stop it. You have a separate phone for pussy. Stop. God. Uh, Bodhi, who's probably my favorite character, and there's this scene where D'Angelo is explaining chess, and you've seen this scene a thousand times in action movies, but the thing The Wire does different is you understand that the drug dealing side of things, they are playing chess there is strategy there is a long-term game they have and goals and uh they go extraordinary lengths to not get caught or noticed by the police and the police are interested in playing checkers short-term game i want heroin on the table i don't care that you're building evidence for a case we look bad to the public and now we need to do a buy and bust so we can stop doing this case because i hate doing extra work but yeah i was back to Bodie. the thing he says is when he's like describing the game, it's like, can a pawn become king? And Daniel's like, nah, soldiers in this game die quick. And he goes, not if you're a smart-ass pawn. And that's Bodie. Bodie's a smart-ass pawn who is going to live long enough to have a nice life for himself. Um, Weebay, who is not part of like the pit crew, just part of like, he's a hitman essentially. And Oh, there are things I have to say about Weebay that I have to, like, <laughs> step around things to say. But Weebay is, like, violent comic relief. And I want to come back to that, like, The Wire is not a show that will do, like, a Star Wars redemption arc thing. But we'll remember to give you spots of humanity. And Weebay tends to play more of like a comedic relief role, but his job is inherently violence. It is killing people. And Weebay is also a rapist. And it's weird to be like, but he's funny though. And the thing about it is that I have to <laughs> like be trepidatious whilst describing these black youths is that when your environment, because all these characters are proxies of their environment, and when your environment the realities of your day-to-day life encompass killing people, life becomes less sacred, right? There was a reason a bunch of motherfuckers in the hood were going out to parties when COVID arose around because death does not mean what it does to people who do not experience it as a reality of everyday life and to not only talk about black youths. Uh, Let's get back into our podcast roots, Amber. Let's talk about Nazis for a second. OG Nazis. Black or brown shirts, I always... Oh, man, it's been a while for (laughs) us, but we're back. back. Classic stuff. Oh, we love talking about Nazis. But classic OG Nazis, black shirts, the reason that they were scary motherfuckers in a way like modern Nazis aren't is because they had just gotten out of World War I and they watched their friends be put into a human meat grinder and their job was to stab motherfuckers to death every day. So when you come back to just life, killing people is something that is easy. It is just secondary to how you live. Here in the States, 
We, for a long time in our nation's history, did not give a fuck about children. Look up the history of adoption if you want to feel sad for a while, but we had, like, trains to transport babies <laughs> because babies were just things that died, so we didn't care. So my point is just, when your life is violence, life isn't as sacred to you, so WeeBay can be, like, comic relief and funny, and also sexually assault a woman and murder people because human beings contain multitudes. Uh, Amber, do you want me to, to complain about Stringer Bell next or talk about Omar next? Um, Stringer Bell. Okay. So Stringer Bell, as played by Idris Elba, and the thing about Stringer Bell is it's like some of the anger is... Who the fuck is the... Don Draper from Mad Men culturally is misunderstood by like people who don't know how to engage with art is like yeah he's he, he's like wrapped up in all of these aesthetic things that are markers for success that's how i need to live my life even though the point of don draper is his identity as don draper is a hollow lie and nothing in his life actually makes him happy stringer bell like he wears suits and he puts on glasses and he can speak with authority and he goes to like business school in a community college and like 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 every motherfucking middle management son of a bitch, he knows how to speak with an air of authority to make it sound like what he's saying is good. But if you pay attention to what he's saying, he's fucking stupid. And I think is interesting is what Stringer wants is to be a businessman. He wants to be a CEO. He just wants to be rich, right? And so he's going to business schools and he's learning how to regurgitate the terms he learned at a community college to make himself seem smarter than all of his friends who don't who don't know what like an elastic product is. Because spoiler stringer, knowing what an elastic product is is fucking useless when you sell heroin. Um, but like learning all of this useless business schools and like the idea of the free market actively make him worse at being a fucking drug dealer because half of the game is just common fucking sense. Like there's this wonderful scene uh, where Orlando, who runs the titty bar, the, one of the many companies under Avon's like shell organization or whatever, Orlando has this whole thing where he wants to get into the drug game and that is runs counterproductive to his job as just a clean person to own this business. And Orlando ends up snitching, right, because he gets arrested. And Kima is in his car and they shoot up Orlando because they just they're just they're gonna kill you kill fucking snitches. But they also shoot Kima, who is a cop. And when Stringer is explaining this to Avon, he's like, Yeah, man, you know, like they were telling me, like, Orlando, he was doing the thing, he had this money, and I was like, y'all can just take the money, get a payday, and or, Avon immediately, like, how the fuck would Orlando have money if the reason he's no longer with us is because he wanted to sell drugs and that's not his job? And Stringer's just like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't fucking know, man, listen, every business goes through, like, low markets. He's like, bro, shut the fuck up! <laughs> Stop talking to me about your college bullshit! We sell drugs! Uh, <laughs> but that's Stringer Bell, and that's the reasons I am constantly upset with this. Oh, I'm also upset because he's such he's such a middle management asshole who is so inat who fucking just refuses to ever get his hands dirty. And this motherfucker is the reason Wallace is killed. <laughs> he gets he gets young baby Michael B. Jordan killed because he tells Putin Bodie Michael, Wallace is 
fucking boy since he was a child to fucking do him in because Stringer Brown is a rat. He's a dirty rat son of a bitch and I hate this motherfucker. I hate him so much. Ugh. I don't know anything about the show, but I have seen your posts on Twitter being like, this guy's a dirty rat motherfucker. So I, I think that's like the one thing that I knew about the show <laughs> before this point. And <laughs> Was that that guy whose name I didn't know, but I was like, that guy is a dirty rat yeah, motherfucker. He's a dirty, no good fucking rat who can't get his own hands dirty, but he kills so many motherfuckers in this show. Oh, I hate him. Uh, and that's, there are like people leaving out like Bird, who is also a hitman, whose thing is, he's just the most unlikable motherfucker ever, but he does, we all do only see him talking shit to cops, which kind of rules. And his thing is, he's very astute. Like he sees Jim McNulty and like, Fuck you, you downtown whore. And that is correct. Jimmy McNulty is a downtown whore. Or he sees uh, Kima and he immediately <laughs> starts calling her lesbian slurs. It's like, good eye. Literally, all of her friends on the police force did not know Kima was a lesbian until she said it. And Bird just notices it immediately. Um, but now we're going to talk about Omar. And I have a lot of things to say about Omar. But before I get into that, uh, when you were like, well, we can speak in like language that is more uh, fantasy turned. And I think that's like a tone for how dense the show is before it's like archetypes we could pull from. We could still do that. And I think that could, we could make something interesting. But Omar is like more of a mythical figure than a real person in the show. And you're allowed like one of I yeah, love that. Like Omar, Omar's fucking awesome and he rules. And it's not that he like speaks in couplets, but there is a. Like a bouncy, poetic nature to the way he talks. He's someone who's very interested in like mythology and he has a lot of knowledge that you don't expect him to have. And he literally whistles his own theme song and he, he's got like a catchphrase and he can walk around the streets of Baltimore with a shotgun on his hip and everyone just runs away because, oh, fuck, it's Omar and this man has a reputation. Um, but Omar is, I, I forgot the actor's name, fuck it. Um, but, you know, Omar is a is a stick-up man. He does uh, rip and runs, which for you, Amber, because you do not know things that black people say, that means he steals from drug dealers for a living. That's his occupation. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time talking about, like, the way he talks and his job and all these other things and, like, the uh, intimidating nature of this man. And I have yet to talk about the fact that Omar is a, a homosexual black man. And I've also spent a lot, not a lot of time just being, like, the Wire is truly landmark television. And to say that, it's like you weren't getting a lot of things like this in 2002. And you definitely were not getting a, a, a dark nigga. Like just a dark brother who was also gay. And that was like never, it's never a bit. And his sexuality is a, a fundamental aspect of his personhood. But I spent a lot of time talking about things that weren't that to just highlight the ways in which he is a fully developed character before that. And like... I don't know. Only times I could think of like around when this was airing, like finding a gay character who was like just a dude was like Will from Will and Grace. But they also had to counterbalance that with Jack who right. was flaming. Uh, and I can think of less niggas <laughs> at the time. But like this thing that I don't know how to exactly say, like <laughs> the first time I've seen like two men express such tenderness on television where like Omar is a guy who can go from shooting someone in the knee with his shotgun to then going home and like 
gingerly caressing the lips of his boyfriend and just expressing such tenderness and compassion to this man. And the line Omar says as he is stroking his boyfriend's lips because Omar is very upset that his boyfriend Brandon is cussing. He's like, man, who wants to hear all those dirty words coming out of such a beautiful mouth? And I'm like, oh my God, you two are so cute. Can you go do more crime? Can you literally be gay and do more crimes? Fun fact about Omar, he's Barack Obama's favorite character because The Wire is Barack Obama's favorite show. So here's my here's a question that's immediately occurring to me based on you've talked a lot about a bunch of characters. Um, are there any women in the show? Kima. <laughs> I can feel someone being mad at me for not getting Kima a lot of credit, but she's kind of my least favorite. Uh there's Jimmy's ex-wife. There's Rhonda, who's the lawyer, who is like, um, yeah, there are women. There, There's, I just, I'm bad with their names, but yeah, there's Jimmy's ex-wife. Just like not, not a lot, a lot of lot. them. There's, they do not encompany the vast majority of the show, but they do, they are characters with arcs and with things. Like in season two, um, they meet a... Norm, a patrol cop who becomes involved with their case through reasons, and like she does have a more traditional arc where it is, uh, she's the only one who realizes that like this police work thing is not for me because we got to the end of this season and all we did was make a number go up on a stat, and I kind of got my best friend killed. I think I'm gonna go back to the old thing, um, or like. Jimmy's ex-wife sluts him out in one of my favorite scenes in the whole show. I'm just going to talk about that. Fuck it real quick. Okay. So Jimmy in season two is like, I'm going to get back with my ex-wife. It's going to be awesome. I'm a fucking genius. And they go on a date and he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not drinking heavy. You know, we're just going to have a wine. We're just going to talk. I just want to, you know, catch up. I can like be a normal guy. And she pauses and she looks at him and she goes, how about one last fuck for the road? And that cuts to them fucking <laughs> and then jimmy is like in his pjs in the kitchen eating breakfast reading the paper like so when are we gonna pick the kids up she's like no 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 jimmy jimmy i'm gonna go get the kids from the babysitter and i need you to not be here because i don't want them to get their hopes up and i do not want you to think this was something other than what it was and jimmy's like what 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 you mean? <laughs> I have to I I have to go to slut walk. <laughs> uh, Jimmy's ex wife slutting out McNulty is just one of my favorite bits of the show. Um, I've talked for a very long time. Do you have any other questions before we hop into or things that could like direct us into character creation? So. It seems to me like the things that immediately occur to me as character creation directives um, are our list of prompts that we have that we generated at the top of the top of the season that's always available. Um, also, like it seems to me that people's like position within like it's it's drug workers, right, is like the main demographic that we're working in here, and it seems like people's relationship to the work that they do is an important factor and we've got like people who are um uh kids who are too young to be doing this we've got people who are like 
um, uh, trying to really work their way up the system. People who are consigned to the place where they already are in the system, but are guaranteed to like, or like, are determined to outsmart it. And so coming up with like an angle that, like a position a person could take in relation to that work as a starting point could be a place to begin. Okay, that one makes sense to me. Hmm. So I'm imagining. So there's a couple of there's a couple of places that I could imagine coming from here. Um, uh, you could have someone who participates in the system but is entirely indifferent to it. You know, someone who is working that job um, in the same way that you would work a food service job. Like it's kind of a bummer, um, but you're there to make ends meet and uh, you don't ha- take a strong stance on the effects thereof. Um, you could have someone who um, is like a, a really someone who was like led to believe something about the work beforehand, but then like, like growing up and then got there and became um, either impressed or disillusioned, like either they were told it was really, really bad and then they got there and then they found that the act of it was not as bad as they were sold as or the other way around where it was something where they grew up in a household where it like represented stability in some way and um, they really look forward to their chance to get to do the work but then upon arrival found out that it actually sucks um, and they develop strong opinions about it that way. You could have a character who really wants to be good at it, but is really bad at it and who absolutely is going to get themselves killed really fast because they are not the smartest pawn in the room. They just I like that really want to be. I, I yeah? like a lovable fuck up. Okay. Then let's look at this. Um, let's look at this list of prompts and see if any of these feel good as a start for us. It seems to me like there's a few in here that work really well. Broken phone works really well. Um, uh, loaded dice works really well. Gun feels too obvious, but a microphone maybe is interesting here. You want to go loaded dice? No, I said we used loaded dice. Oh, we used loaded dice. You're right. Yeah. Shit. I didn't mark that. We used loaded dice and we used silver bullets since the last time you uploaded it. Updated. You're right. Thank you. Okay, I have an idea and I think it's kind of dumb, so I'm just going to talk through it and we'll see how we feel at the end of it. But I see a book in a language they don't understand and my thought is not like it's literally in mandarin or something but it's it's a big book of business right because this person the person in the barksdale foundation they admire the most is stringer bell because stringer bell talks a lot about business and this is a big book of business with a bunch of stupid fucking terms that they don't get and they also don't understand that learning from this big book of business runs counter to the realities of having a drug business is how do you feel about that in what ways do we think it runs counter to the to the business of 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 being in the drugs business because like it a lot of the things Stringer learns to parrot operate under the assumption that, like, the hand of the free market matters and is not a thing. It is, like, is real and is not a thing that is actively, like, manipulated by corporate interest and money. And, like, Stringer becomes addicted to the idea of doing, like, fine, normal business wherein people do not get hurt. And the thing about having a drug empire 
is that you need a reputation. You need to be known. And some of what you need to be known for is that you are not to be fucked with. Avon, like the reason the high rises and the things they own are like the best real estate for this is because it is where all of the dope fiends live. And that is something Avon got through blood, through killing people who had it beforehand. And now it is something you need to keep with violence and with threat. And when you read a bunch of business acumen books, you think that this is something that you can do fair and that you are in just a business, but you're not <laughs> because sometimes <laughs> you need to be Bodhi and you need to run up on the ops with a bat and chase them out of your fucking corner. Okay. So let me follow this up then. Let me, let me build on that. What if it's not just like a guy who has a book about something what if we have a character who, like, fully went away to, like, business school or something? Like, went away, got a degree, and then ended up, I don't know, whatever plans that they had didn't pan out, or in some way they ended up back in Baltimore, and they were like, well, I have all of this business acumen, um, I can use that in this business, um, and... So they have, like, this sort of foundation for their belief that they are gonna know everything, um... And then we get to explore how, like, even though they have expertise in a thing, that, like, that doesn't translate for them. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense to me. I'm trying to envision the kind of continuity that exists. Like, is this, are we, like, presumably we're doing, like, a little B-plot in, like, a little mini-arc in the show, yeah? Yeah, that's how I would imagine. So, we probably want to come up with, like, some way in which this character... Um, uh, gets involved and then probably gets killed, one assumes. Yeah, because I, I, I was like, well, they could be someone who makes it, but if we are making someone who is not good at the thing, that gets you killed. Yeah, there's a wonderful line, sorry, where uh, Herc watches Bodhi beat the shit out of some people running up on their turf and goes, that's why we can't win the drug war. We fuck up, we get pensions. They fuck up, they get beat. So yeah, if we're making someone who is bad at thing, we are making someone to get killed. And probably someone who, like, would do really well in the other system, where if you fuck up, you get a pension. But they're not in that system. They're in this system. I'm trying to think of, like, they left, and now they're coming back to the game, and how does someone like that get in? And what I think it is, is one thing we've not talked about in corporate structure is a classic fail son, a Nepo baby. And I don't want to have it be like related to Avon because D'Angelo is already Avon's nephew. But I think this person, and we need to come up with like a nickname for them, like Snot Boogie or some shit. They all have nicknames like, like Bird, <laughs> shit like that. Um, and I think it'd be like Einstein or Book Smart, something about like college and being smart would be their nickname. But I think it is that like Einstein knew Avon back in the day and Avon's like, nah, that's my boy. We got to give him a chance. And that's his back in. Because I don't know, just like focusing on how they get back into the game was an important pin to nail down for me personally you do the the, the creed thing the creed three yeah. thing yeah oh man creed three's awesome <laughs> rocky's gonna be a fun episode so yeah so you have this character who who knew him back in the day went away for business school and then i don't know maybe you find like 
Okay, what what time period is the show set in? It's like contemporary with its airing, yeah. right? It's like the aughts, and there's a there's a lot of season two is about like whoa fucking computers, man. Uh, but it is in Baltimore, which means despite being in the aughts, everything feels like the nineties still. Oh, it is a post nine yeah, eleven so, show because nine eleven and like counterterrorism. I am seeing that. Fun. Yeah, I saw it was two thousand and two, and I was like, okay, so yeah, nine eleven happened then presumably that's like a part of all of this and i had a fleeting moment where i was trying to tie a character to that and be like oh they got a job at the world trade center and that didn't pan out and that's but that didn't that's stupid (laughs) that doesn't actually connect to anything politically it doesn't say anything so i dropped it (laughs) um that's an episode for if we're doing a stupider character (laughs) yeah that's that's a that's a worse idea Here's a thing I think could help us because I feel like neither you or I have a great business acumen. I don't know shit about big business. What if we kept we keep this idea, uh, but we go back to that like fantasy novel language so that you and I can just like discuss things we're more comfortable and fluent in. So like, what's the fantasy equivalent of knowing a big business? So I'm not. I'm not necessarily looking for, I don't necessarily mean that it gives us a toolbox to play in, in terms of um, like direct analogs. Like here's the Lord of the Rings character that this character represents. I just mean like, like fantasy novels. Like the reason it feels like a fantasy novel, right? Is because there's a lot of factions to keep track of. And there's a lot of like rules about how the world works. And I think that, like, we already have a sense of what faction the guy is a part of, right? So, okay, the the if you did want to do a direct comparison to, like, what is the fantasy version of this, right? Then you have, um, uh, uh, there's a couple of potential analogs that this is. This is either the character comes back from a quest and returns changed. Frodo comes back to the Shire, but he has no longer properly returned the way that he was. Or you do, um, uh, the character has been to, you know, wizarding school and comes back and nobody recognizes them. Um, and then it's sort of a question of like, okay, has our character changed in the journey away from home? Or has home returned while they've been gone obviously the character never came home but which was it home or the character that changed in the process of that very happy you said wizard because i immediately thought like yeah it's a wizard and no one knows what the fuck he's saying anymore and also his name is wiz we found it his his that's his, his correct name yeah. is wiz. he's a wizard i think i think he changed i i don't baltimore did not change uh he came back different and now he's trying to apply that this different skill set he's he came back to a wild magic environment trying to do his fucking fae magics and bro no it's about feeling it it's not about numbers dog i really think that there's maybe an interesting way i i really like the idea that this is a character who could do well on the other side of the line the side that gets pensions but isn't here and i'm wondering if there's a, a way that we can emphasize that through comparison or through visual language my immediate thought is like you have the scene where lieutenant daniels is talking to his wife and his wife is like if you did this you could climb up the structure better and then you cut back to Wiz, and he's parroting that in some way but that feels kind of stupid 
I don't know if I'm in love with that idea now that I've said it out loud. But sometimes you're not in love with the idea and you just have to say it out loud. Sometimes saying it out loud processes it. It helps. Oh, I'm just going to vamp for a second because there was a thing I forgot to say up top when I was talking about like a dialogue and just not a lot of shows are doing this. But I've seen a lot of shows that are like socially conscious and important. I have not seen a lot of shows that explain... <laughs> Like, <laughs> the concept of labor disparity and labor disparity and the way that, like, your bosses exploit your labor <laughs> as started in a conversation about Chicken McNuggets. Okay, here's an idea that maybe solves a couple of problems for me. I don't know if I love it, but, uh, but, but, but reflect on it with me. Um, so maybe our character... The reason that he came back is he got this job. It's some kind of a business job. And he, his, like, his, like, first job out of college was being, like, a business analyst or something for the cops somewhere that isn't Baltimore. He got a job at a police station. Um, and then either he fucked something up royally or he just like fucking hated it. He like he like started working there and it like did something to his soul. He like really felt he was like recognizing um uh he was like recognizing that what he was doing didn't feel good to him anymore. Um and so he like decides to leave and comes back to Baltimore and um probably doesn't tell everybody that he was a cop right like that's a thing that we're privy to as the audience but he's really evasive with everybody about why he chose to come back um uh, and the answer is that he worked as a cop for a second somewhere else and we get to like see inside his head maybe do some flashbacks during the process of that in order to like show that he knows things about cops and that's like a thing that he can use that everybody else is just like oh it's because he's the whiz and he knows things um, but actually it's specific applied knowledge that he has, which would help him on the cop side. But ultimately, like he brings up facts, but it doesn't end up being super useful or even sometimes specifically misleading from the other side of things. Like a reverse CI, civilian informant, for those who don't know. I like this idea. I will say one thing to make it more the wire is uh, there would not be a flashback. Please. There is one flashback once in the pilot episode and they never do it again. The wire is addicted to assuming you have the foreknowledge and just throwing out names and shit like that. So uh, the good, great. Yeah. Good. So it, it would just be like, he says things like uh, uh, PB, PBJ and the rest of them are like, what the fuck is that? And he's like, Oh, you don't know. And it's like, no, no one knows what that means. It means like, perjury before jurisdiction or some shit and i don't remember what that actually means but just like, he like he can speak in cop lingo right and that confuses yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone else when he's just throwing around terms like 588 or whatever the fuck right and that ends up like just alienating people from him and we get to like see that happen and he's like no 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 i know what i'm doing here i can help you guys but ultimately he can't because he doesn't understand the way it actually works yeah, I'm I'm getting that. I'm feeling it. This this makes sense to me. And and like it's specifically he's confident because he's still like having been on that side, working under the fucking up and getting punch getting pension mines. He's working he's playing checkers still. And you see that he's still playing checkers. Yeah, we've 
I think we really hit the like product of his environment uh, aspect of a The Wire character that I'm I'm definitely satisfied with that aspect, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's coming together. What's he like? Yeah. What's what's his yeah, vibe? What's the vibe. What's the day to day like for Wiz? Because you mentioned lovable fuck up, so I'm like, do we like him? Are we rooting for him? And then it's tragic when he fails, or is it? more complicated than that so particularly if we're doing a season one character it is tragic when wallace dies i do think this is a different enough thing to not tread that same ground i think though we should do it's more complicated than that because the thing i did want to get is like you know, why our characters are generally more complicated? They lean more scumbag. Uh, you know, Wallace and D'Angelo are too good for this, so they're not, like, they're outliers, right? So I think there's, like, a level of dirtbag to be introduced to this guy and then, like, remembering to have the moment where the humanity shines through and that will really make it feel like a The Wire character for me personally. But I think... Hmm. I want to say generally pleasant, but then, like, yeah, I I think, like, for the most part, talking to him is fine, but, like, you know when you're talking to someone and they're just kind of full of shit, but they're not, like, a bad guy? Yeah. It's, like, fucking aggravating how up their own ass they are. So we have this character who both worked for the cops, like, was a cop, but also felt bad enough about working for the cops to quit. And I think that covers both the dirtbag and the layer of humanity shining through, if we can extrapolate out from that. I really like uh, this is a character who's totally full of shit and totally up their own ass. And maybe it's like kind of annoying to talk to him. Um, And I think probably some sense of like this character doesn't have a lot of like moral scruples, but I think the the place where those scruples probably do come out is in, I don't know, loyalty in um, like allegiance to, or like, like, I don't know, uh, uh, guardianship of his, like his home or his loved ones. Because if he stops working with the police, I would assume that's like, it rem- he, like he comes from a background where there are a lot of drug workers, and I think that we can surmise that probably seeing the effects that he's having back on that crew is probably the thing that prompts him to leave. So he probably has some sort of strong attachment to his upbringing, to his background, to the people that he came back to. He decided to come back in the end. Um, and I think that speaks to like a level of care that he has for his immediate community, and I think that that's probably the place that we find the core layer of humanity in there in the end. Yeah, that makes sense. We're still missing something. I can yeah. feel it. I can feel that we're still missing something. Okay, I'm going to work through this thought I'm having uh, for good podcasting. But if you're police, you are part of brotherhood. And I think Wiz's immediate attachment is more like to the community that he was policing than the specific police force. And that alienated him from that group. And then there is a, like, 
poetic. It's like it's like poetry. It rhymes when he goes back home to try to uh, find what you lost. You can't go home again, whatever. And then he's then again alienated from that group. I think that makes sense, but it, that's really good. That's really sad. Yeah, it's sad. I think that makes sense, and that's good. But it's a not the original thought I was going for for like the specific moment he left, and I don't think that's the thing either. But I'm happy I said it. I think it's true about the character. Yeah, I think it's figuring out not the specifics of like leaving the police, but the specifics of what is the fuck up that gets him killed like when stringer orders the hit what did Wiz? yeah is it necessarily stringer ordering a hit it doesn't have to be just in my mind it is because my first instinct is shot by the cops oh because you know of you know the tragedy of it all you know the irony and everything you know i like that i mean like maybe a little bit played out at this point at the the current moment of of film in our in our in our cultural conversation we have a lot of movies about black men getting shot by cops right now um but you know maybe fewer of them in 2002 yeah we're doing we're, we're, we're in the past right now it's it's totally rad up in here in this post 9-11 time <laughs> okay i i have an idea i think i think i finally hit it so yeah the the like cops are playing checkers wherein all of the upper management does not actually want to deal with this case that our crew have been painstakingly building for the whole season and they keep doing like they just want to buy bus they don't want to have the wire they want to do a raid right i think in like one of those real simple just go in guns a blazing not thinking about it things is when he gets shot because he's like I'm trying to connect like his short sighted cop thinking to their short sighted cop thinking and have those intersect in a way that results in his death. What's his goal? Like, okay. He's trying to raise the business to get higher in the business. He's trying to do it by conventional business practices. So he, and he's playing checkers. So he does this thing where he advertises like along channels that it's probably not smart to advertise through, right? He advertises a little bit too publicly in some way. He does a little, a little campaign, um, uh, maybe online because computers are the hot new thing. Maybe he posts flyers around town. He does something like that. Um, and the flyers let the cops track him down um, where he's sitting. And if the cops kept going, they would be able to track through him to the other people. But they're not trying. But they're playing checkers. They're not trying to go after the long-term gains. They're trying to track down whoever put up these flyers, whoever... Um, made this post online, and so they bust him. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And Avon will be like, no, dog, that's stupid. What? We, <laughs> we specifically have pagers and use payphones so that we cannot be tracked. Why do you put your name in your email address that you are broadcasting that you sell drugs? 
And, like, you know, you probably put one extra layer on it. Like, he doesn't put his, like, legal name on it or whatever. He puts down the whiz or some shit like that. And everyone's like, that's even dumber of you to, like... And then through that, the cops track them down and then probably even get a lead on everybody else. Um, although maybe, like, they get the lead and they don't follow it. Like, we get the scene where the cops do the bust, they see the extra evidence, and they go, like, fuck this. We don't want to look at this right now. Um... Uh, because it complicates our game plan. So they just end up with a dead guy on their hands, and the whole thing is fucking pointless. And, like, that's the yeah. point. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. Are you satisfied? Does that feel like the thing? Do we want to come up with, like, a... We, I mean, like a, like a... I don't know how much appearance makes sense in this. Like, there's probably not, like, a standard wardrobe. Uh, it's... Baltimore 2000s fashion, so it's 90s fashion, so it's all very baggy clothing. I, most people... Probably dresses a little nicer than everybody around him, yeah, right? Yeah, I would say, like, the nicer dressed people are, like, Stringer, because once do business and D'Angelo, because, like, a point of his character is that he's, like, I can't think of a better word for it, so I'll just say he's, like, metrosexual. He very much cares about his appearance and shit like that. So he's probably dressing, like, as expensive as Stringer, but it doesn't work as well on him. Like, he's wearing clothes that cost a lot of money, but he's not wearing them as well. Yeah, like, Stringer is wearing a tailored sweater. I think our guy just bought a sweater with a brand name and did not check to see yeah, how yeah, yeah. he purchased it. Absolutely. Oh, that reminds me, real quick, a reason I fucking hate Stringer is because, okay, spoilers for season two, D'Angelo goes to jail at the end of season one, and there's this thing where, like, D'Angelo's baby mama is supposed to visit him in prison, yada, 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 and Avon's like, you, Stringer, who are not in prison, need to go convince my cousin's baby mama to come see him in jail. Everyone has their part to play. And Stringer's like, all right, I got it. I'm a fucker, and that'll get her to go visit D'Angelo. <laughs> I'm a genius. And <laughs> So there's this moment where Stringer's in D'Angelo's baby mama's house and she comes out and she goes, you know, D'Angelo bought this sweater when he was up in Louisiana. It's a shame. It never got worn. That feels like a waste. Whoop-de-woo. And Stringer, like, grabs the sweater, looks at it, looks up, looks to the side, looks back up, and he goes, you know I'm an XL, right? And she goes, oh, my God. And he throws the sweater down and starts making out with her. And I was like, this, you fucking piece. It's one thing to fuck your friend's baby mama. It's, a, it's another thing to the job be, get your friend's baby mama to see them in jail and you fuck her. It is another thing entirely for you to fuck someone's baby mama and then insult them and be like, man, this, you know this nigga's small and I'm big, right? Fuck you, you piece of shit. <laughs> fucking hate Stringer Bell. But yeah, that's... Hey, on the subject of fucking, um, do you want to transition into sound effect? I ship it? What the f***? In Yowie Art, the semi, or top, is usually dominating the UK, or bottom. It was fun! The relationship is cute, damn it! I ship that! Now we're here, we're in the ship zone talk about a character's general sexuality and also we talk about if there are any ships we feel strongly about shipping this character than anyone else or we feel like the fandom would ship with anyone else i think since this is one i'm more familiar with and i'm not immediately getting a read on like 
anyone I would strip ship with. I think the fandom. Oh, the fandom would ship Wiz and Stringer Bell, and it's both like a business thing. And I think Wiz would be very subservient because Stringer Bell is played by Idris Elba. He is an incredibly sexy man, and so like Stringer's doming him because he's like he's big. He's big business. He really knows this shit. You think you're hot shit? I'm, I'm going to fucking. I'm going to community college right now. I know all these terms. Uh, I think that's the immediate ship that splits out into my head. Uh, but Amber, do you have anything to say yeah. while we're in the, the ship it section? Anything about sexuality or any note of that nature? It's interesting because, I mean, like a 2002 show, it really feels like it, like with already one gay character on it, like I feel a certain obligation to make him straight. I don't know if that's, like a thing like if that's an instinct to to pursue or to like specifically rebel against you so know just to talk uh kima is also gay and she is in a marriage that seems to be good in the first season but then season two happens and also speaking of omar be gay do crimes omar in season two like hooks up with in a business sense a, a lesbian couple who are also stick up women <laughs> and there is like allusions to like maybe this right hand man of the greek is gay in season two he has an affinity for nikki and uh but we haven't talked at all about bubs and we're not going to because uh this show does has like painstakingly realistic portrayals of what it means to be a junkie and like the fact that being a junkie is a full-time job and neither of us have lived that experience to make a oc who is addicted right. to heroin with the uh, reality um but like there's kind of a right maybe bubs is romantically tied to johnny boy so like you could if you want to wiz could be gay. okay so here's my here's my thought is i think that wiz definitely swears up and down that he's straight i think that um wiz even probably pretty protective of his straight identity and um uh it's very much uh like a thing that he strongly maintains um and also i think that probably he's he's hooking up with a couple of dudes on the down low you know i think that that's pretty consistent with what we know about him so far yeah i think wiz finds out about omar and he's like the first because everyone <laughs> on the barksdale crew immediately calls omar a bunch of slurs i think wiz is the loudest and then goes home is like i'm gonna suck this dick though Ain't no one gonna stop me. <laughs> I don't even think he sees a contradiction in it. I think it's like he he's a he's a Roy Cohn. He's like it's not gay because I'm topping you. I'm <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, that feels like a really successful. I ship it, and and we did the Chekhov's object right. It's a book in a language he doesn't understand. We did. It's true. And that, ladies and gentlemen, and those are not specific genders is a character is it time for sign-offs i think it's time for one fun fact a piece oh, right one fun fact a piece do you have yours no okay, not yet well, then i'm gonna vamp because i promised everyone i would talk about jimmy mcnulty's maximum fuckboy moment so the re well, part of the reason jimmy mcnulty is getting a divorce from his wife outside of having the personality of a man who loves to get divorced is jimmy cheated with 
the lawyer whose name I cannot remember at the moment, and they hook up a few more times throughout the season. And there's this one where Jimmy just gets fucking hammered because he can't be like an actual cop. He has to be a boat cop, and the one thing he's good at is doing fucking police work, so he's just depressed. He's drinking himself to death, slow Irish suicide. Shows up on her doorstep, hammered. They sleep, wake up, and she's like, Jimmy, you show up to my house, too drunk to fuck me, too hungover to fuck me in the morning. What? What is this? What are we? We're not boyfriend and girlfriend. We're not dating. Are we soulmates? That doesn't feel right. What? Give me something to work with. And Jimmy, true fuckboy, goes, we're good together. And I'm like, damn, you, <laughs> you fucking deviant. You had it. <laughs> but then <laughs> she walks away and does like a deep sigh, like, what the fuck? I'm gonna fuck him. I know I am. I, I why he sucks so much. And when she's in the other room, Jimmy <laughs> just goes, "Ah, get me a fucking aspirin. I'm dying over here." <laughs> you fucking piece of shit, Jimmy. Oh, I love to watch you, man. All right, I have two fun facts. One is real simple, and I think Wiz is one of the, like, not actors, but just someone they found from Baltimore, but does, like, a surprisingly good job with how much we demand for this character. But my big fun fact is that I think Wiz has not the latest gaming system, but the one right before that, and is very excited about yeah, it, and relates to, like, Wallace and maybe even begrudgingly Poot and Bodie because they can talk about SNES or some shit. That's my fun fact. I think he's got asthma. Yeah, that makes sense. That's my fun All fact. Yeah, right, he got asthma. And that's a. And I think that's, that's it. it. That feels good. Wire episode. This is a classic Devin Wire episode. episode. Big one, but I think we landed it. I think we did too. And speaking of landing this plane, you know who never lands planes? Jerrica. Because I don't think she flies planes. I could be wrong. It feels like that would happen <laughs> in the 80s show, but that's not the... There's no way there's not an episode where Jerrica flies a plane. <laughs> but that's not the version I'm immediately familiar with. Because, you know what we're not going to talk about next week, Amber? Jamming the holograms. What are we going to talk about next week? Next week, we're going to talk about, um, in you know, in keeping with the wire, pretty just like tonally consistent, thematically consistent. We're keeping a pretty consistent through line. And next week, we're going to talk about High School Musical. Uh, wow, you've seen High School Musical? I didn't know you saw the High School Musical movies. <laughs> yeah, surprise. I have. Oh, boy. I, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm going to rewatch only the South Park episode to prepare for that one. <laughs> That's fine. Um, thank you for listening, everybody. Make sure to uh, like, comment, and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating and head over to our merch store um, where we'll be selling heroin. Um, uh, heroin. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We're so in sync. I have been Amber Autumn, she, her. Devin, he, him. Our theme music is by Kyle Alicia, whose work you can find at therealragnarok.bandcamp.com. I don't have any other sign-offs. Um, thanks for listening to all of this. Um, bye. Uh, bye. Yeah. Oh, That's fuck, it. Shit. Bye, bye, everybody. Bye.